0: A ago. The Podcast Platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert Today, Introduction to Prison Abolitionism and Transformative Justice with Nasrin Himala. Hello, everyone. Today, my guest is Nasrin Himada, who's uh, uh, in uh, Montreal while I'm in Paris. Uh, one, once, uh, for once, we're going to do it uh, through Skype, uh, breaking the, the little rule from Archipelago, but for a good reason, I will explain very soon. Uh, Nasrin is uh, doing a, a postdoc at the University of Montreal uh, with uh, with Brian Massumi. She's uh, she's a very interdisciplinary person, as she will uh, tell us uh, herself. Uh, she does uh, uh, some work of uh, curating, but also used to be the editor of, Scape- of Scapegoat, uh, the journal Scapegoat. And now she's involved in a new journal uh, based in Toronto called Moving Image Culture. Uh, hello, Nasrin. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Uh, so thank you for talking with me today. Um maybe just to kind of warm up our voices like would you would you mind uh, telling us a little bit what what you're doing like this work I've been I've been very briefly presenting could you tell us a little bit more about that before we we start the uh quote unquote real conversation uh, sure
1: <laughs> um right now i'm focusing a lot on my uh curating work and my editing work so that is uh um, been very, uh, prevalent for me right now. Um, I have, a, a screening tonight, actually. Um, um, uh, we're premiering Kamal Al Jafari's work. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a, a, filmmaker based in Berlin, um, is Palestinian. He is one of the best filmmakers around, I believe. And, uh, his, his work tonight is called Recollection and we're, it's based on, um, uh, Kind of reappropriating images from uh, old Israeli films to capture what uh, Jaffa looked like at one point. Um, so it's I'm very excited for that tonight. And I was I was telling you I'm editing a new issue uh, um, that's uh, coming out of this new magazine in Toronto uh, on moving image culture. Uh, but basically, it's focused on media arts uh, and what the general conversation around media arts is right now. And the issue theme is on invisible labor, so I'm really thinking a lot about um, what what work, what labor uh, uh, is uh, uh, goes undocumented or goes um, uh, kind of uh, it, yeah, go, disappears or is made invisible uh, through the process of making uh, art. Generally speaking, um, mm. we're thinking a lot around what it means to, uh, for example. Uh, th- uh think through uh, emotional labor, uh, especially when it comes to um, uh, work around uh, issues of care or self care or community care uh, we're thinking a lot about what it means to for uh, artists of color uh, uh, writers of color to generally be in a context that is white dominated and the invisible labor that goes into explaining white supremacy, for example um, so we're th- yeah we're wanting to. Uh, we we're hoping that this issue would uh, really um, um, amplify the conversation around uh, uh, these these kinds of positionings that I feel like are are can be um, yeah they they kind of, there's there's a bunch of work that happens uh, behind the scenes and that's what we kind of want to reveal in the issue what that is and why it's important to talk about yeah so that's where I'm at right now is in my research and. In my thinking around uh, images and film and art, yeah.
0: I see. Well, I'm very much looking forward to to read these uh, first issues, and and uh, um, invisible labor will ultimately be a a very useful segue to to start our conversation actually, and I'll, I'll explain why in a, in a in a moment. But uh, so to to explain a little bit the context of this conversation and why uh, we could not wait to to uh, to record it. Uh, um, And especially I'll be in Montreal soon, so we could have waited, but we cannot wait because it will be it will be one of the uh, it will be the the interview that will be featured in the next issue of the Phenomenalist magazine about uh, carceral environments and uh because of that we are going to talk about one aspect of your work that is fully dedicated to uh prison abolitionism and uh you will tell us a little bit uh, a little bit what uh what this uh, struggle involves uh and we will talk about the um, uh the various uh, aspects of this uh, of this uh, struggle and uh i think that would be very useful in the context of the magazine in so far that there will be uh extremely interesting articles about about case studies of uh of uh, incarceration but this this conversation will allow, allow us to will allow us to um to have a little bit more of uh uh sort of reflective uh reflective time to to think of prison in general and and incarceration in general which I think, uh, both for just anyone, but in particular, uh, I'm thinking of architects uh, and uh, sort of uh, community, if that even makes sense, that I represent, uh, and how and how there's um, uh, uh, there is always a sort of uh, debate between uh, making prisons better or refusing to do prison uh, altogether. So I think that will be a very interesting, uh, interesting. Uh, um, a conversation for that matter but the reason why i thought uh invisible labor was a was a useful segue comes from um, a piece of text you were kind enough to send me uh, uh where you explain that you almost came to abolitionism uh, prison abolitionism if, if if that makes sense uh almost at, at, at a at a time where you simply were exhausted from the the, the sort of uh, uh, um, your your contribution to the Palestinian struggle from uh, from where you are in Montreal, uh, and uh, and I, I guess it it's it's uh, it's interesting to think of of uh, we don't really talk so much about exhaustion or fatigue in 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 those kind of struggle, and uh, when actually it's a it's a big part it's a big part of it and it's a. Uh, um uh, i guess maybe if you if you want to give us a, a little bit of a almost autobiographical account on on this on 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 this stake of abolitionism in relation to the, to to this to this feeling of fatigue somehow it'd be very useful i think
1: yeah yeah um i was uh yeah i at the beginning of my PhD research I was working really well actually for a very long time even before I started my PhD I've been trying to think of ways um how to approach the conversation around Palestine that would uh that would make it so that it it's very much in touch with bigger issues that are that have to do with more than what Palestine is or what Palestine represents. So I was very very focused on what it would mean to kind of uh, really think through what goes on on the ground in Palestine that connects to what is happening from where I live. So I was very concerned with with the distance. I've never been there. I'm Palestinian, but I've never gone. Um, well, how. I have found out about Palestine was really through images, through cinema, through media, um, you know, and from mostly from the point of view of, of Western culture, right? So this was a very uh, uh, um, uh, daunting task for me to really try to f- navigate through uh, uh, the Western perspective on Palestine and to think of how to to really uh, make concrete connections between. Uh, uh, the occupation there, the violence that goes on there, uh, uh, that, is, that also happens here at different levels, right? So I started to, I think, a really big and important book for me uh, at the time it came out, I think it was 2007, it was E.L. Wiseman's The Architecture of Occupation. And I was really able to do, to think about concrete connections. Uh, 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 between Palestine and here at, a, an ar- at an architectural basis. So I was very much interested in, in what it means to design occupation, and then that's how it, I started to get more into what it means to design cities uh, um, that really condition, uh, um, um, condition um, the kind of... Um, um, and how do I say this? Condition and uh, cultures, cult- cultures of incarceration. So it's it was really important for me to take to really think about that materially. And I mean, I, I couldn't think of anything more material than actual architecture, like what it means to build something, to design something, uh, uh, to think about infrastructure, to literally think about drawing a map. You know, um, using a pencil and and drawing the lines. So it was. I really start to get into it that way, in order to also to give myself distance from it emotionally. Because as you were saying, this this work for people who like me, who are very much invested in it personally, is is emotional, and it's 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 very hard to not uh, um, feel all all the violence on say one's body, whether you're there or not. Right? It's very much uh, inherited. So that was my that was the point in in that text that I was writing was that it was very, um, I was very interested in in also taking responsibility f- from an account and being accountable from the the ground that I live on. And, and I, I live in Canada, and I'm, I'm, uh, even though I'm a Palestinian immigrant, I'm still a settler. And so it really, I really wanted to start to think about what it means to uh, uh, um, uh, kind of to have that similar uh, passion for the struggle of uh, of Palestine. To really think about what, what, what that means to have that same kind of passion. Uh, uh, um, to be in solidarity with indigenous communities here, and and so that was that was another aspect of it. Um, and then, it, because I live in Canada and the and it, I think it's very there's very 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 little information about Canadian prisons. Uh, there's as you might know already there's so much information on American prisons. I started to really research a lot on the states and the U.S. on the U.S. prison system. Um, uh more so than Canada, but then eventually i was I started to think I started to get um, um, more into uh, um, um, the uh, kind of uh, abolition scene here in Montreal and that was kind of my way into finding out more about what what the Canadian prison system, how it organizes itself and 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 what the and what its violence is here. And uh, the more I got into it, the more I realized that uh, it's very much connected to colonization um, and that it's obviously, (laughs) but also that, uh, uh, also literally, um, I think even just a a few weeks ago, um, um, the statistics statistics came out uh, that uh, revealed that there's more than, uh, I think, the indigenous population of Canada is about 4% but uh, uh, they represent, indigenous communities represent more than uh, a quarter of the prison population. So it just shows you a lot in terms of how colonization is very much connected to the carceral state here. Um, And so that became more kind of uh, important work for me. Um, Yeah. Is that a good start? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, and, I, I, actually, in the around the same lines of the of this text I was citing uh, earlier, you you're, uh, uh, you talk about how you you have a long tradition of you refusing uh, isms, so to speak. You, you you never considered yourself as a Marxist or as a anarchist or any other East. Like that, yeah. except uh, until you came to abolitionism and and so and became uh, an abolitionists. So uh, I, I'm sure there's uh, uh, various degrees of uh, of knowledge uh, uh, about abolitionism, prison abolitionism uh, um, in uh, in our, our listeners and I mean in with myself as well. So uh, w- would you mind maybe just starting to introduce this uh, this idea and then we'll we'll sort of discuss. Uh, the, the um, things more into details
1: yeah, um, I mean uh, there is uh, just to begin um, and to acknowledge some of uh, uh, the work that are, that already exists, um, there's a group in the us that has been around for over a decade called Critical Resistance who really began working around the, the issue of abolition. Uh, from way back, and it's a very, very important organization that uh, Ruthie Gilmore co-founded and Angela Davis co-founded, so I just want to acknowledge that um, that really th- that term comes from um, the work that's already done with critical resistance. Um, for me, personally, I, I couldn't, um, there was, it was always um, intuitive for me to come to prison abolition because it I was already. Um, how do I say this? Um, it was already very. I already felt that we can't as as um, say as activists as organizers who were very much concerned with the well-being of each other and everybody. That I couldn't think that we there in our organizing or in our future idea of what uh, uh, this um, kind of world would look like. Um, i couldn't imagine there would be such a thing as prisons because when we think about for me when I think about incarceration, I really think that it's very much connected to uh, uh rooted issues that are or that we're already fighting right so um like um like I mentioned already colonization, white supremacy uh, uh class struggle so i don't i don't I feel like the prison system is not separate from these bigger issues that are already um, um, creating these uh, um, uh, power relations on the ground uh, that marginalize certain people, mostly people of color, obviously in the States. Here it's indigenous people in the States, uh, African Americans. So I feel like this is very much connected to how uh, uh, um, uh, racial capitalism is structured, how um, um, how we think about... Uh, um, yeah, and we see, we see. I feel like the prison system. I feel very much mirrors the the society that we're we're struggling against, and that we're trying to uh, 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 fight against. Mm-hmm. So this is that for me, abolition uh, felt a very obvious turn. I guess mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to say.
0: It seems yeah. to it seems to be coined within the the very term, right? Because coming from African American thinkers, the very word of abolition could not could not not recall uh, the slavery abolition. So I suppose it was very much integrated within this, in a very uh, deliberate way uh, within these terms, the, the, all those aspects you just described.
1: Um, yeah, and Angela Davis talks a lot, a lot about that in her book, Are uh, Prisons Obsolete? And she very much uh, yeah, uh, uh, maps the history of, of those terms. Um, and specifically because I think in the U.S. in the is it the 13th Amendment? Um, I think she says something in, in something like uh, um, it's still uh, that slavery is abolished. It's like slavery was abolished at some point, and until and, but it wasn't completely abolished in the 13th Amendment. And it was something like you know if you were imprisoned. You were gonna be enslaved. Like if you if you committed a crime, your punishment is basically enslavement. So it's like connected. I'm totally. I haven't read it in a while, but it's it's in there, and she really explains that very clearly. Um, this idea that that prison, that uh, incarceration, and criminal and criminalization, specifically of black bodies, was still connected to enslavement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, yeah. There is that history there. Um. For me, I also felt just that. Um, and Rachel Zellers talks about this a lot in, in the interview that you read with her um, and it really resonated with me because I feel that prison abolition is really connected to the way we, um, we want to organize together, and not just organize but also be together. And I feel like she really makes that very clear in the sense of like thinking about care. Thinking about what it means to care for one another, I feel like has a lot to do with how we hold each other accountable, but not through a a, a um, state-sanctioned means. So not through the courts, not through the police, not through punishment, not through the prison system. I feel like prison abolition lets us imagine what those possibilities are how we can be accountable for each other, with each other, and how we can care for each other at that level that doesn't require uh, uh, ostr- ostracization, punishment, torture, violence that is very much connected to state practices, right? Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: so maybe we should actually uh explain a little bit what this uh, what this interview uh you conducted uh well, was about for people uh, outside of Montreal who would not know Rachel Zellers who uh who so co- co-founded this uh, collective Third Eye Collective right and uh and uh so you you conducted a, a, a an extensive interview of of their uh of how this came about and uh and uh how uh in in the frame uh, in the sort of uh framework of thinking of prison prison abolitionism is a this sort of thing that almost appear as a as a as a paradox at first and and, and we we kind of understand little by little how actually it is not which is to held accountable um uh, people i mean in the, in the case of her her, uh, militancy uh, very much uh, uh, um a domestic partner or, or just uh, 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 other people who commit uh, sexual assaults on uh, uh, African Canadian women. Um uh, and um and so so there's this sort of uh, uh, there is this sort of thing that appears again at first as a paradox where we're thinking prison abolitionism, and we're thinking about, as you say, 25% of, of the of the carceral population in Canada being indigenous uh, indigenous people. We understand there's a problem. We understand how conditions uh, uh, so, so, societal conditions can uh, lead uh, in a much easier way to prison uh, rather than others. Uh, but then we're also looking at. Uh, uh, people who very simply are committing uh the worst uh the worst case of uh abuse of power and this also uh this also they are also involved within uh the, the sort of societal project that uh prison abolitionism uh is envisioning but mm. as you say no longer no longer in the in the framework of punishment and prisons but rather in terms of accountability, and I, I suppose p- prevention, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah, it's just making me think about your question about alternatives too earlier. Um, I was thinking about that a lot, and people ask this a lot. You know, um, uh, fair enough, of course, because it is hard to grasp. I just, I just want to say that for me it's not that um, for me personally i don 't want to speak on behalf of anyone that i'm not or 'm not um, i'm not already thinking there's like um something to replace the prison so when I think prison abolition or transformative justice i'm not thinking there are already things that we need to come up with, like infrastructures or buildings or systems that we need to replace the prison with I'm like really thinking like in a in a slower time i'm thinking that. Uh, we need to, to think about what it means to, uh, how to imagine the impossible, uh, how to imagine the possible within what seems like the impossible, right? So I have no answers for that. I don't know what, what would happen in the sense of, I mean, there was just a, I just was listening to the radio and there was like, you know, the police just cracked down on, uh, um, um, on a, a, like a pedophile ring, you know? And I know this is a question that comes up often too. So it's like, what would you do with pedophiles? What would you do with murderers? What would you do with, you know, these like extreme cases of violence? And and I don't know. It's not, it's not something I, I want to answer, but it's something, because what I think about, I think about how it is or, already important to take the steps to think about what it would mean to not... For example, uh, involve the police or involve the prison system or involve the court system in in uh, uh, cases of violence, like Rachel was talking about, and that is to or to begin by uh, establishing strong communities, right? And I think she talked about that a lot, right? I think it it just begins by. Uh, thinking about what it me- means to literally care for one another right so it's not I'm not already at this like big um, <laughs> I'm not like mapping out like a big alternative system I'm already I'm just thinking how how do we do it how do I do it Wh- For myself, with my friends, for example, how do we, how do I hold myself accountable with my friends, with my colleagues, with people I work with, with my family, and how do I do it on the street, right? So how do I already practice abolition on the street? And I've talked this, I've talked with this a lot with my friend um, who's also involved in Third Eye. And, uh, you know, I told her that part, part of my abolition practice is to be aware in public of what happens. To step in, right? And so I, you know, there's was, uh, you know, a few cases where uh, people started fighting, and I stepped in, you know, and made sure that the cops were not called, for example, you know. So it's like this, this kind of interjection that an intervention that kind of helps, that uh, helps to support what's happening right away, you know. And it's you can't do it all the time. I mean, I, if if someone, if it was too dangerous or too, uh, uh, um uh, over, like, like, you know, I, it was, it was too, too dangerous for me to step in. I don't, I don't know if I would, but I'd also don't know if I would call the cops. And that's something like I always think about, right? Well, what, you know, there's a, a great article that was written. Um, I can't remember who it was written by now, but I can send it to you. Um, uh, you know, in terms of what you can do, uh, before you have to call the cops, and it's like a list of things, right? But for me, in any case, before you even get there, I'm just like, it's already important to just build the community that you can call yourself before you can call the cops, right? That's like, for me, that you begin there. You begin by just creating a a real kind of uh, support system that would stand in for uh, uh, um, as an alternative to picking up the phone and calling 911, right? So I feel like that was also the, the point that maybe Rachel was saying too that it really started with the Third Eye Collective, Transformative Justice, Justice Collective, began by them just having dinners together all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And creating this kind of atmosphere of a of, uh, 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 kind of space that felt uh, um, uh, safe and open. And, and, and close, right, uh, creating a kind of closeness that then, and trust that then you would uh, kind of move from there in terms of what what the next steps are of providing support for women who are uh, sexually assaulted, yeah, or who experience sexual assault, yeah, so I feel like that, that's, it's, it's really starting at the base level, yeah, and not thinking about how, what, it would mean to not (laughs) to have something that's different than a prison because that's you're already then thinking carcerally you know yeah i don't know if that yeah yeah
0: and uh, and i'm very glad we're talking about that because that and uh that gives me the opportunity to say that uh yeah i i apologize for uh forming my questions this way especially in in the in the email i send you to prepare the the conversation. Oh, it's, it's no apologies necessary,
1: but it was—it's a, a very important question for me to think about because I, I always want to have a better answer.
0: <laughs> sure, no, but because it's very interesting because that, that's kind of the first thing that people will—people who think they take you seriously will think about. Uh, uh, as they say, yeah, but okay, but so what do you do with pedophiles or racist or uh, rapists? Uh, well, <laughs> both. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do with those? What do you do with those people once you don't have prisons anymore? That's kind of the logical first questions that comes to your mind, and as we know well, the first question that comes to your mind is usually not the most the smartest one, and uh, and somehow. It kind of relates to, and I think that's what you mean when you say that's already thinking carcerally because it already relates to after the violence. And we should probably be trying to think much more before there's even the possib- the conditions gathered to bring violence, right? So I suppose yeah. that that kind of takes the whole thing upside down and it's it's an entire kind of brain exercise that it requires requires people to do it's the way
1: yeah oh, sorry
0: no no but uh, so I mean I'm, I'm just saying I'm very happy because that, that I'm I, I'm kind of uh, I feel I feel like throughout those uh, email exchanges and text reading and and this conversation in particular uh, I came to I come to do this uh, this whole process to to think differently about about uh, uh, what 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 I called alternatives, uh, and I think that would be a great thing to convey as well throughout this conversation for uh, anyone who's intrigued by this uh, by this concept, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I think Rachel says it too in the interview. It's like beautiful this one liner where she says, "You know, transformative justice begins by changing yourself before you change the world." I think something like that. I can't remember, um, but yeah, it's it's it really starts with you, <laughs> with in terms of how you want to practice being uh with people you care about and you want to support and that's that's really the the most important
0: yeah and uh as you, as you mentioned the 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 things to do before calling the cops as you said the the immediate uh consequence of of thinking such a such uh, anti carceral concept is to is to rethink the very function of the police isn't it i mean uh, we like we don't want to call the police. We want to call the 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 firefighters, right? Like the, the right. meaning meaning we want yeah, we want it's, someone who can fix we can, fix, like we can intervene in in fixing uh, in dissolving violence. But we don't need a, a sort of a addition of violence after one violence has been has been committed.
1: Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And that's that's a, definitely a hard one, too. Because I know you know there. I had an argument with a friend about it. Um, you know, and she said, "So what are you saying? You know, when my friend's ex-boyfriend shows up at her door as an as in, and is threatening to cause violence, and you know she has no other option but to call the police. Like she shouldn't call the police." And I said, "No, no, because." I would hope at that point your friend would have another number <laughs> to call someone else, you know? And so that, that for me is what transformative justice is, is building, building on that, building communities so we have those phone numbers to call someone else, you know, and to, to, to come in, to show up for, for that moment. Because that's, that is dangerous, that's fundamentally dangerous, and of course you'd want to call the police, there's no doubt about that. But also, again, yeah, often when you do call the police, like you were just saying, more violence shows up. So it's it's very tricky. That's why I think it's important to think about uh, prison abolition and transformative justice as really connected to community building. Really connected to what it means to build communities that that uh, um, have a really strong uh, uh, presence in our lives in terms in for it, in relation to our well-being and for each other's well-being. Yeah.
0: So w- we talk about this uh, this interview with uh, with Rachel Zellers and uh, the the other text that uh, you kindly sent me to prepare this conversation uh was um, was a text you wrote for the journal uh, Fuse uh about this collaborative artwork between uh, Jackie Summel and Herman Wallace uh so in that case it's more describing uh a uh, uh, work uh, work that is done um, and from part of it from directly within the uh, carceral, carceral uh, system. Uh, could you maybe tell us about this artwork and your conversation with uh, with Jackie Summel?
1: Sure, yeah. Um, I met uh, Jackie, this was years ago, I think it was 2009. And uh, she was kind enough to meet with me and um, talk to me about her project and her work with Herman Wallace, who uh, was one of the Angola Three. Um, he passed away I think, last year. Um, he was able to leave. He got diagnosed diagnosed with cancer and was on his deathbed. And three days before he died, he got released um, um, on compassion. It was compassionate release, and. Um, Anyway, he had spent over 40 years in uh, solitary confinement. Um, and this was a very, um, um, very talked-about case. The Angola Three, who were uh, Black Panthers inside prison, who started in bl- a Black Panthers chapter inside prison, were organizing and advocating for prisoners' rights in Angola, in Louisiana. And um, uh, basically the three of them uh, were imprisoned for... Uh, what seems to me like a, a, a crime they didn't commit. A guard, a guard died during some fight, and they got blamed for it and put in solitary. Um, a lot of what gets talked about is they basically got targeted for their political uh, positioning inside prison and what they were able to do inside prison um, to try to change the conditions uh, that uh, them and their and their uh, and their fellow prisoners were living in. Um, so, uh, Herman Wallace was, uh, uh, put in solitary confinement, was in there for over 40 years. Jackie, uh, um, started writing to him after she heard, um, uh, Robert King was another, was one of the Angola three. He got released. He was the only one who was released. Um, and when he got released, he started to go on tour to talk about, uh, their, uh, uh, um, Herman Wallace and, um, Oh, I forget his first name but the other um the uh, Woodfox Albert Woodfox was the other one and he Albert Albert Woodfox is still in inside Angola and in solitary um so he's the only one left in there now but anyway so uh Robert King got out he started to tour uh different places to talk about the Angola 3 and um and then Jackie heard him speak at uh when she was uh, in San Francisco uh doing school there um, and and she decided to start writing to Herman. They got and they started writing, so they really it, their their project began as as a correspondence. Of, for over ten years, they've been writing to each other, you know. Um, and then she at some point realized that he had been moved to something called the dungeon, which is worse than solitary. And he his writing started to deteriorate, um, and she started to notice that he was getting extremely depressed and. And, um, you know, she was doing her MFA and and she got this, assigned this ridiculous project on like, you know, talk to your prof about their favorite house or their dream house or something like this. And she was like, this is ridiculous, um, but maybe I could ask, you know, Herman what his dream house would look like. And that, maybe that would help him kind of, um, try to get, try to help him out in, in the situation that he was in that was very dire at the, at the that time. Um, So she consulted with his advocates and his lawyers and his family to see if that was like an okay thing to ask. And they said, yeah, just like we should, you know, we we should try anything at this point. And and then she wrote him and asked him this question. And at first he was reluctant, but then they really got into it. So a lot of their correspondence was him imagining this dream house that he would have, you know, and uh, it became a really huge project. It became uh, a lot of people got involved. Uh, in helping him imagine what this house would look like, um, a lot of designers got in, involved. So there is like a, uh, a a video um, kind of that describes the house, and um, and she there are like blueprints. Um, there she started she started to kind of organize an art exhibit around this correspondence and around what was being produced. Um, that that. Kind of gave this house life, and so she used that as a platform to talk about his situation. So it got really, really uh, a lot of attention, and um, and yeah, it was one of her. It was through art and th- and through this kind of uh, collaboration that, uh, um, yeah, we, he, that his 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 situation and the Angola Three situation was kind of made even uh, bigger and more public. And it got a lot of people involved in terms of what it means to uh um to to have something like solitary confinement in the u s and to have someone be in there for over forty years so it really uh um uh problematized that as well for the bigger public in the u s yeah yeah and it was okay. through art I think that was very for me what was interesting about it was it wasn't. Uh, it was using her skills as an artist to really initiate this this kind of uh, collaboration you know it wasn't your usual kind of um, go-to advocacy or activism it was it was by just like imagining what this house looks like that uh, conversations around uh, solitary confinement were being um, made public yeah
0: Since we're talking about, house and maybe to to conclude this conversation uh by talking about the architecture of those carceral environments and uh with again without without going into specifics since uh, the articles will do that but um going back to this question i was evoking start starting uh, uh starting this conversation about uh architects that um that uh for many understand how they would systematically refuse any any sort of uh contribution to any carceral uh, facilities and i mean we we have uh we have the the sort of uh, uh pledge that uh Raphael Sperry has been has been uh, leading about architects uh, uh pledging not to not to ever uh, design uh, solitary confinement cells or or uh, death row um, uh, facilities, uh, and and somehow there's there is a relatively good understanding within the architecture community that uh, clearly that would be participating to something that uh, uh, they don't want to have anything to do with. Uh, even though they would yeah. definitely not call themselves uh, abolitionist in any way. I mean, they haven't really thought about it so much. I mean, with, uh, but uh, somehow uh, what this discussion uh, trigger in me is, is not so much related to prison, but related to everything else. How, in that case, why are architects not uh, more uh adapting the same refusal to uh let's say a bank or uh, a, f- <laughs> a, f- a factory or uh i think how-
1: Ra- i think Raphael spiri talks about that i f- i think uh, uh, he does he's he's like one of the things that this is making me i mean in terms of his i'm, I'm really just paraphrasing here and i, I might be totally sure. off i can't remember that article very well uh, but um I think one of the things he's saying is that through this initiative to, 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 to not, ha- like, because it's like a licensing thing, right, that it's like arch- to really have architects not, as part of their licensing mandate, not build uh, uh, spaces like solitary confinement or death row but um but i think he he's saying also that it because of this initiative it gets us to think about what would be important to build and not build right so what would be and to design and not design and he talks about that in, in relation to really focusing on schools and hospitals and clinics and community centers and that it really kind of shifts the way we think about how uh, infrastructure is is built in, in in spaces, and what infrastructures are focused on, and what are not, right? So his I think his whole initiative is really kind of drawing out that conversation of of to like you know to like lean in to community building, community center building, health clinics, schools, um, spaces for after school stuff like that and to to move away from building spaces like prisons and and, and carceral spaces right because it's not just prisons it's just how the cities are built too can create these carceral spaces that uh c- you know condition uh um uh surveillance and security and and condition how how people are allowed to move or or manage how people move or don't move in a space yeah.
0: Mm. Well I think it says a lot about architects responsibilities that the best thing they can do for prison abolitionism is not to do something <laughs> not uh, it's it says a lot about how architecture might be uh, might be quite often more uh, part of the problems than part of the solution, so to speak even I mean even exactly I like yeah which goes
1: back to what E.L. Wiseman's book on the architecture of occupation. There's no occupation without the design and architecture of it, right? It really has a lot to do with how you perceive a space, how you think about what, the pot, what a space can do when you design it in specific ways. You know, and that has a lot to do with how people move in a space. This is like such a silly example, but I always think of this when I think of architecture and, 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 and space and power. But you know how like IKEA is designed so you walk all the way through it, you know? Like there's when you turn back it gets confusing. There's no like the exit is on the other side. So you really have to go all the way through <laughs> IKEA <laughs> to like get out, you know? And that's something that I think about often in terms of how our movement is really managed. From walking on the street to being on a bus. <laughs> it's really yeah. very, very concrete that way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because the same is true for every single corridor that's been built in the history of architecture. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. Well, uh, Nasrin, so thank you so much for uh, for this.
1: Thank turn. you. The I, theory, if yeah. you have more questions, I can do five more minutes. I don't want to rush you. If...
0: No, no, that's all right. Uh, I think that was a very enriching conversation uh at least it was for me for sure as as you as you saw <laughs> <laughs> and uh and uh, i'll be very happy to have this conversation both on the on Archipelago and within uh, the phenomenalist magazine so thank you very much
1: thank you so much and thank you for understanding and thank you for everything <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks